The True Crime Beyond Bad podcast may contain material that is of a violent and graphic nature. This podcast may not be suitable for some people. You have been warned. Hello and welcome to the True Crime Beyond Bad podcast. My name is Rob and I'll be your host. Uh, this is episode one, so uh, stick with me through this and I'll try not to turn it into a bit of a train wreck. Um, I have no experience doing podcasts. Uh, this is the very first one, so hopefully uh, you'll find it uh, entertaining and informative. Um, I've had a fascination with true crime since my early teens, so this is something I've always wanted to do, and uh, I thought I'd just give it a go. Um, being a true crime podcast, I won't just focus on murder and serial killers, but uh, bring cases from all facets of crime. So, anyway, enough of my yakking. Let's boogie. Okay, so uh, the first um, podcast is uh, based on Jerome Henry Brudos. Now, some of uh, you might not have heard of Jerome Brudos or Jerry Brudos, but he was a serial killer that uh, was active in the late 60s. Um, he, uh, I, I came uh, to know of Jerry Brudos from watching Mindhunter. Um, the two uh, FBI uh, agents interviewed him in episode series one um, when they were doing their profiling studies, and uh, I hadn't heard of him before. I, all the other ones that they in- interviewed, I had heard of, and um, I thought uh, I'll look into him, and I thought oh, I'll, I might just do a. a, a, a the first podcast on him. So um, anyway, let's uh, let's get into it. Um, uh, Jerome Henry Brudos, born January 31, 1939, in Webster, South Dakota. Um, he had an older brother, Larry. Um, um, his mother was Eileen Brudos, and his father was Henry Brudos. Um, his older brother, Larry, was intelligent but uh, a placid kid. Uh, his mother was a very domineering and uh, bullying type of woman. Uh, his father was a small man, five foot four inches. When uh, Eileen found out that uh, she was having another child, she didn't really want another child, but uh, if she was to have another one, she wanted a girl. But uh, when uh, Jerry was born... Uh, she was quite disappointed and actually grew to resent him. And he could sense as he got older that uh, she did resent him. And uh, I, I believe that this played a lot into uh, the way he turned out. Uh, you might not, not agree. Uh, some people think that uh, bad people are just born bad. And, and there are people like that. But uh, some people are. I think their environment has a lot to, to do with how they turn out. 
Uh, anyway, um, they lived in Portland during the Second World War. Um, they, his father had plenty of work. He worked on farms just as a farmhand. Um, they had financial stability. Uh, at the age of five, I don't know what it was like back in the the uh, 40s, but um, or I should have said late 40s or yeah, mid-40s, what um, uh, the parents were like with letting little five-year-olds run around the streets, but uh, Jerry was. He was running around, and he um, he made his way to the junkyard. And uh, rummaging through some rubbish, he found some women's high-heeled shoes, and they fascinated him. He carried them home. Jerry got, to, Jerry got the shoes home, and uh, he proceeded to play with them. He put them on, walked around, uh, and he found it... Uh, quite comedic um, I, and I think you know being only five years old he would have just probably found it as a you know nothing sinister in it or anything like that uh, probably didn't have a fascination with uh, high heels at that stage as he turned out to have anyway his mother Eileen caught him and she was outraged she scolded him and ordered him to return them to the junkyard uh, Jerry couldn't understand why she was so angry and uh, what he had done wrong. He didn't take the shoes back, but instead he hid them. He was once again caught by his mother. This time there was hell to pay, and she burnt the shoes. I think uh, Eileen burning the shoes probably made the uh, the high-heeled shoes more more um, appealing to him, thinking, oh, these what, what's so bad about them? I, I need to know more about them. Uh, anyway, at this age, he he already hated his mother. Um, he he could feel the animosity from her, and uh, he was uh, starting to hate her at this time. Around, around this same time, Jerry had a friend. Uh, she was a girl that lived, uh, I think it was a neighbour or across the road, something like that. The same age, uh, she was often pale and tired and couldn't play with him. Um, that's because she was dying from tuberculosis. And uh, Jerry found that uh, very hard to deal with. Uh, she did eventually die from the disease. And, and her, de- her death was devastating for Jerry and he grieved for a long time. Moving along to when Jerry was in first grade, his family had moved to Riverton, California. His first grade teacher wore high heels and would often take them off while sitting at her desk. When he had the opportunity, he stole the pair of shoes and hid them under some blocks in the play area. Eventually, one of the other kids found the shoes and returned them to the teacher. Uh, A couple of days later, he confessed to stealing the shoes. The teacher was more puzzled than angry and asked him why he took the shoes. Jerry ran from the classroom embarrassed. He was a sickly kid, uh, suffered from measles, reoccurring sore throats, swollen glands, laryngitis. Uh, Jerry had several operations on his legs due to the veins in his legs ballooning. Uh, Jerry's brother sailed through school with all A's on his report card. Uh, Jerry seemed slow at school, but his IQ tested normal or above average. 
The family moved again in 1952 to Wallace Pond, Wallace Pond near Salem. Moving on to at the age of 16, Jerry began to create bizarre fantasies. He started digging a tunnel on the side of a hill on the family farm. The plan was to get a girl and put her in the tunnel. Once he had her, he would make her do anything he wanted. He knew that the thought of a captive woman begging for mercy excited him. At the same time, Jerry began to steal shoes and underwear from neighbouring houses. Again the family moved, this time to Corvallis, Oregon. Jerry resumed the theft of shoes and underwear from his new neighbours. At this time, Jerry approached an 18-year-old girl that he had previously stolen lingerie from. He bragged to her that he had been working with the police on the case, but she was doubtful. Uh, But Jerry was very persuasive. Jerry convinced the girl to come over one night when he knew his family would be out and he would discuss the case with her. The girl came over. When she knocked on the door, Jerry called out to her from upstairs. Up here, come on, come on up. She followed the sound of his voice up the stairs and into the room. The room was dimly lit and she couldn't see Jerry. Suddenly a tall figure wearing a mask jumped out and waved a large knife. Take all your clothes off or I'll cut you. Do it, the masked figure shouted. He pressed the knife against her throat. The girl removed all her clothes. She knew who was behind the mask, but she didn't know what he was going to do. Jerry produced a cheap camera with a flash attached. She realised that he wasn't going to rape her, but was going to take pictures of her. He ordered her to pose. He took pictures of her totally naked and some of her partially clothed. When the roll of film was finished, the masked man left. The victim put on the rest of her clothes and headed out of the bedroom. Jerry emerged, not wearing the mask and breathing heavily. Are you okay? he asked. I was out in the barn and somebody came along. I couldn't see, couldn't see who it was and they locked me in. I just managed to break out. Did you see anyone around here? She, ch- she shook her head, knowing quite well that it was him, and uh, she got past him and ran home. Jerry believed he had fooled his victim. Later, the victim told police that she knew it was Jerry and that she was afraid of him. She didn't report him at the time because she was scared he would come for her and kill her. About eight months later, Jerry managed to lure a 17-year-old girl into his car on the premise of a ride. The girl began to panic when the short ride she had accepted when Jerry began to drive faster and further away from the main road. Finally, he pulled into an overgrown driveway and parked at a deserted farmhouse. Jerry dragged the girl from the car and began to beat her. The girl started to scream. He pulled at her clothes, ordering her to strip. He wanted to see her naked. Fortunately, a couple from a farm down the road happened to be driving past and saw the commotion. As the couple drove past, the man stopped and asked what was going on. The victim couldn't speak due to her mouth being swollen from the beating Jerry had given her. 
Jerry chimed in and told the man that he had just arrived, chasing off the assailant into the bushes. The man wasn't buying it. The couple took the victim to their farmhouse where they called the police. Jerry, believing the couple had fallen for his story, followed them to the farmhouse to wait for police. When the police arrived, Jerry confessed to the assault. He said that he wanted to frighten her enough to make her take her clothes off. The police found camera equipment in his car and recognised premeditation for the attack. The victim was treated at the local emergency room for extensive bruising and a badly broken nose. Investigators went to Jerry's house and searched his room and came upon a cachet of women's clothing and shoes. They found photos of a nude girl. Jerry was arrested for assault and battery. He was referred to the Polk County Juvenile Department, which began a background investigation. Jerry was committed to the Oregon State Hospital for evaluation and treatment in the spring of 1956. Jerry had deeper problems than the average juvenile delinquent. The provisional diagnosis of Jerry Brudos's problem was adjustment reaction of adolescence with sexual deviation fetishism. Jerry was not a full-time at the mental hospital. During the day, he was allowed to attend high school at North Salem High. Jerry stayed at the hospital for about nine months. Jerry finished high school and attended Oregon State University of Salem Technical Vocational School for a while. When Jerry went to university, he uh, excelled in electronics. It was something that came very natural to him. On March 9th, 1959, Jerry joined the U.S. Army and was sent to Fort Ord, California, and subsequently to Fort Gorgon, Georgia. He was sent there for basic and advanced training in the Signal Corps. He showed skill and interest in communication and electronics, at which he excelled. Not all was good and fine with Jerry uh, while he was in the Army. He uh, had delusional dreams about killing women. He found this distressing. He spoke to the army chaplain who referred him to Captain Theodore J. Barry, the the staff psychiatrist. Dr. Barry determined that Jerry was not fit for service because of his bizarre obsession and recommended discharge for him. On October 15th, 1959, Jerry was discharged. Jerry returned to Corvallis, Oregon and moved into the two-bedroom house where his parents lived. When he moved back with his parents, they moved him. The house was only a two-bedroom house and uh, while his brother Larry was at university, he could sleep in the bedroom. But when his brother came back from from university or college, um, Jerry was uh, relegated to the shed in the backyard. Um, at this time, uh, Jerry had started stalking women. Women in nice clothes with high-heeled shoes. One evening, Jerry went to Salem on an errand where he spotted a woman in a bright red outfit. He followed her. She did not realise that he was behind her. She turned into a foyer of an apartment building where Jerry struck. Before she could scream... Jerry had wrapped his hands around her neck. 
he rendered her unconscious. He stole her shoes and left her semi-conscious. He did this again to another woman in Portland, Oregon. This time the woman fought back and he managed to make off with only one shoe. During all this time, Jerry obtained his FCC license and got a job as an operating engineer at Corvallis Radio Station. A work colleague at the radio station introduced Jerry to Darcy Metzler. She was 17. They went out on a date, although Darcy admitted she wouldn't have dated Jerry, but he asked her out to go swimming, and Darcy loved to swim. Darcy was six years younger than Jerry, and she was impressed with his job and with him. He was very tender with her. He would pull out chairs for her, open doors, bought her gifts and flowers. He put her on a pedestal, and she liked that. In 1962, Darcy fell pregnant, and six weeks later, the couple were married. A daughter, Megan, was born in 1962, and the marriage seemed to be going well for the first three years. Darcy didn't know that when she did or said something that made Jerry depressed, he would prowl the neighbourhood stealing underwear and shoes to make himself feel better. Jerry would make Darcy cook and clean the house naked, except for wearing a pair of high heels. He would also take naked photos of Darcy in different positions and take photos of her wearing the underwear that Jerry had stolen. Jerry would get a kick out of that. Jerry had constructed a dark room in his basement where he could develop his naked pictures without prying eyes. Darcy had become the fantasy girl that the 16-year-old Jerry Brudos had wanted to place in a secret tunnel on the side of the hill. The Brudoses moved from one rented house to another. They lived in 20 houses or more in the seven years that they were together. In 1967, Darcy gave birth to a baby boy named Jason. Around this time, Jerry started stalking again. He was down in Portland where he saw a girl wearing a pretty pair of shoes. Instead of knocking her down and stealing her shoes, he decided to follow her home and take her shoes from there. He waited until she was asleep and crept into her house. This made him feel excited. He was creeping around in the bedroom when the woman woke up. Before she could scream, he was beside her with his hands around her neck. He choked her just enough to make her lose consciousness. He raped her there in the dark and when he was finished, he took the shoes and left. Shortly after that, the Brudosses moved back to Salem. Up until this point, Jerry had not murdered any of his victims. Not until 1968. Now we come to the victims. Uh, we're now in January 26th, 1968. Jerry's first victim was Linda Slauson, 19-year-old door-to-door encyclopedia saleswoman. Uh, Linda unfortunately knocked on Brudos's door and Brudos pretended to be interested in buying a set of of encyclopedias and lured her to the basement while his wife and children 
were in the house. He knocked her out with a wooden plank. Uh, I think it was a two by four, I read. And then he strangled her. He dressed her in different undergarments and shoes that he had stolen, arranged her body in provocative poses and used a hacksaw to cut off her left foot, which he kept in the freezer and used to model his collection of high-heeled shoes. He disposed of the body in the Willamette River. His next victim was Karen Sprinker. Karen Sprinker, 19 years old and a freshman at Oregon State University in Corvallis, abducted at gunpoint from a parking lot outside a department store in May 1968, where she was to meet her mother for lunch. Brutus was dressed in women's clothes during the attack. Witnesses said that they'd seen a person or someone that looked like a woman at first glance. The witness said that the person was a tall, heavy person, all dressed up in high heels and a dress. She was just standing there in the parking garage, as if she was waiting for someone. She was tugging at her girdle and fixing her nylons. The witness said that the person looked weird and was possibly a man. He brought Karen to his garage, made her try on his collection of undergarments and pose while he photographed her. He then raped her and strangled her by hanging her by her neck from a pulley. He had sex with the body on several occasions and cut off her breasts to make plastic moulds. Afterwards, he tied the body to a six-cylinder car engine with nylon cord and threw it in the Willamette River. Jan Susan Whitney, 23, a motorist whose car broke down, an older model Rambler, on Interstate 5 between Salem and Albany, Oregon, on November 26, 1968. Jan was a pretty girl with short, thick brown hair and blue eyes. She was 5 feet 7 inches tall and weighed 130 pounds or 59 kilos. Brutus offered to drive her home with the excuse of letting her call a tow truck there. While still in the car, he strangled her with a leather strap and raped her post-mortem. He kept the body hanging from a pulley in his garage for several days, during which he dressed, photographed and had sex with it. This time, Brudos cut off one of her breasts and made a resin mould of it that he used as a paperweight. Afterward, he tied the body to a piece of metal and threw it in the Willamette along with Slauson's foot, which had rotted. Sharon Wood. Jerry attempted to abduct Sharon Wood at gunpoint from a basement floor of a parking garage in Portland on April 21, 1969. She had left work around 3.30 in the afternoon. Jerry approached Sharon from behind and tapped her on the shoulder. She turned and looked directly into Jerry's blue eyes. And when she saw the handgun, Jerry said to her, If you don't scream, I won't shoot you. Sharon yelled no at the top of the lungs and at the same time backing away. Jerry quickly stepped behind her and wrapped his arm around her neck in a half-Nelson fashion. Kicking and screaming, Sharon grabbed the gun that was right in front of her face. 
Jerry's hand passed close to Sharon's mouth and she bit his thumb as hard as she could. She could taste his blood from the bite. Her jaw had locked on Jerry's thumb and he couldn't pull it away. Jerry grabbed her long hair and pulled her head down towards the concrete. He began to beat her head against the floor. Sharon began to lose consciousness. Only then did her jaw relax and Jerry pulled his thumb out of her mouth. He picked up his gun and ran off. Not being dissuaded, the next day, Jerry attempted to abduct Gloria Jean Smith, 15, on April the 22nd, 1969. It was 10.30 in the morning. Gloria was hurrying along the Southern Pacific Railroad tracks headed for Parrish Junior High when he spotted her. Jerry approached Gloria and with a hint of urgency in his voice, he said, I want you to come with me. I won't hurt you. He grabbed her by the coat and dragged her between two houses and showed her the gun. He told her, I won't rape you. I won't do that. He dragged her towards his car where she had broken free from his grip and ran screaming down the street to a woman who was working in her front yard. Jerry jumped in his car and gunned it so no one would see his license plate. The next day, Linda Sully. Linda Dawn Sully, 22, abducted from a shopping mall parking lot on April 23, 1969. Brutus brought her to his garage where he raped and strangled her and played with her corpse. He decided not to cut her breasts off because they were too pink and instead drove an electric current through the body in an attempt to make it jump or make it dance, which failed. A few weeks later, Sally's body was discovered in the Long Tom River. A lone fisherman parked his truck on the Irish Bend Road and gathered his gear for an afternoon of fishing. He walked onto the Bundy Bridge looking for a spot to drop his line where it wouldn't get snagged. After casting out a couple of times, he decided to cast out further, and then he saw something, a large bulky object floating just below the surface. He walked down to the bank to get a closer look. He saw that the object in the water was a human body. He was up the bank and back to the truck in seconds. He went straight to the Benton County Sheriff's Office to report what he had found. Deputies were dispatched to the river, they radioed back confirmation that it was the body of a woman in the river. They also relayed back that it wasn't an accident, that the body had been weighed down with a car transmission. The woman was identified as Linda Sally. Linda's body had been bound to the transmission with nylon cord and copper wire. Activity at the Long Tom River continued throughout the weekend. Police scuba divers combed the river from shore to shore. On the following Monday, 50 feet or 15 metres from where Linda Sally's body had been found, a diver discovered another body floating just below the surface, also weighed down. This time they had found Karen Sprinker. Karen had been missing for 46 days. Her body had been weighted down with a six-cylinder engine head. Again, her body was bound to the engine head with nylon cord and copper wire. After a few days, however, the search of the river was suspended. 
Investigation begins. One of the detectives working on the murders came up with his own profile of the killer and wrote a list. His list read, Number 1. Killer is between 20 and 30 because all victims are young. Number 2. Of at least average intelligence, the knots used to tie car parts to bodies took skill. Number 3. An electrician. Copper wire on the bodies wound one turn around and broken, then wound twice as electricians do, twisted in a fashion common to electrical wiring. Number four, probably from a broken home with one parent gone, or the child of a strong woman and a weak father. Strong dislike for mother shown by a desecration of female body, hates women. Number five, probable record of antisocial behaviour going far back. Number six, not participant in contact sports. Women strangled, not beat. Strangulation requires little force. Number seven, not a steady worker because of the differences in times of girls' disappearances. Number eight, driven by a cycle of some sort. All girls vanished towards the end of the month. During the course of the investigation, the police interviewed students at Oregon State University in Corvallis about the murders. Some female students reported receiving phone calls from a strange man claiming to be a Vietnam veteran looking for a date. One of the students actually went out with the caller, a heavy-set man with light hair and freckles. During their encounter, the man made some reference to the dead women found in the river and the possibility of taking his date away and strangling her. Police asked her to call them if the man ever called again and to set up a meeting with him at her dorm. After a few days, the man, who turned out to be Brudos, called and agreed to get together with the young woman. Instead of his date, Brudos found the police waiting for him when he arrived. They interviewed Brudos and decided to investigate him further as a possible suspect. After a young woman he previously attempted to abduct identified him, the police were able to get a search warrant for his home. There they found a wealth of evidence, including nylon rope and Brutus's photos of the victims. Brutus eventually pled guilty to the murders of Sully, Sprinker and Whitney. He was never tried for Slauson's murder since the body had never been found. For these murders, he received three consecutive life sentences with the possibility of parole. His wife divorced him in 1970 and left the state with their two children. She has since changed her name. While serving time at the Oregon State Penitentiary, Rudos tried several times to appeal his convictions, but these efforts failed. Rudos would often write to shoe companies and request catalogues of high-heeled shoes, which he considered to be his pornography. He died of liver cancer on March 28, 2006 at the Oregon State Penitentiary Infirmary. At the time, Brudos was the longest incarcerated inmate in the history of Oregon Department of Correction. Well, there you have it, folks. 
the story of Jerry Brudos. Not a very nice person by any means. Um, I hope you like the podcast. Um, hopefully you'll tune in for the next one. I, I hope to do these, i uh, say, every every fortnight. Um, as you can tell, I'm... I'm not. Uh, I'm still a bit wooden when it comes to doing these. Uh, it takes a while to research and write the the script. Not the best script in the world, but uh, I'm not a very good writer, so uh, I'll keep trying. Um, I will try and put out another one within the next two weeks. So every fortnight, until I get a bit more uh, fluent and uh, a bit more professional with the way I do things, and uh, try and do them every week. Yeah, but I hope you uh, enjoyed it. Um, if you like it, uh, subscribe. Uh, also, I have a Facebook page or Facebook group. Uh, just look up True Crime Beyond Bad on Facebook and uh, join the group and leave comments and leave suggestions and tell me what I'm doing wrong, what you want to hear, and etc. etc. And uh, hopefully, you'll be back again. And if you've lasted this long, I really appreciate it because. Uh, it was killing me trying to do it, and I was trying to be as professional as I can, but uh, as I said, I will get better, so uh, hang in there and, and try again. So uh, again, thank you very much, and I hope you enjoyed it, and hopefully I'll catch you next time. their magnums they want to hurt the poor people in the street i've got my magnums i'm ready i'm loaded